Hello, humans. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM 950, talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie. How are you? Happy Saturday to you. Yes, Saturday in May, and we finally have spring. Welcome back to another show and podcast of Ellie 2.0 Radio, where all, where all we do is talk about idealism and idealists, humans working to make the world better. And in May of 2023, certainly... That work is very, very much needed. We got reminded about that by a CNN town hall uh, done this week with the former yellow man, orange man. As usual, we have a great show. The big interview is with two idealists, who also lawyers, uh, working to make Minnesota's jury pools more diverse and thus more fair for criminal defendants of color. And in my C block, I'll talk about my work as an idealist. Oh, and by the way, you may be hearing some panting in the background, and you know why? That's because I brought in Jack. Jack, the golden retriever, um, English cream golden retriever. He's here with me, and I'm holding him so he doesn't roam around in the, uh, in the recording booth. And so that panting is not me. It is Jack. But now in our A block, let's start with this week's, fe- this week's featured idealist. And to be totally transparent, much of what follows, well, not much, but some of what follows is from a recent National Public Radio piece with Scott Simon. The NPR piece is titled, Russian Protest Art Group Pussy Riot Wins Woody Guthrie Prize. The Woody Guthrie Prize, named after the famous folk singer, is given annually to artists who best exemplify Woody Guthrie's spirit and work by speaking for the less fortunate and serving as a positive force for social change. Okay, so some of you may have heard about Pussy Riot, but if not, here it is. Pussy Riot is a feminist-based performing arts music group that was founded in 2011. The membership of the group has fluctuated from 15 members down to three or four. Its members are known to wear uh, balakavas, okay, that's full face coverings with only openings for eyes and the mouth. And most notably, in 2012, the group performed on the altar of Moscow's Cathedral of the Christ, the Savior Church, with the song Virgin Mary, Please Get Rid of Putin. So these are Russian women uh, beginning, you know, in Lebanon in their 20s, but now they're in their 30s. As a result of that performance at uh, the church in Moscow, um, three Pussy Riot members were arrested and convicted of hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. That's the, that was the charge. <laughs> Jack is eating the cord. Okay. <laughs> keep going, Brett. We'll just keep going, okay? Hey, everyone, this is why you love me, because it's Ellie Krug. Okay, the three women, uh, Nadzia uh, Tolk, Tola Konakava, okay, and Yakatamura Samasevich and Maria uh, Alakovina, okay, so please, my Russian is not very good, as you can tell, but three women were sentenced to prison. Maria was released after only a couple of months, but Tola Konavia and Akia Homa, (laughs) I'm just not getting these right, am I? Two of the women served 21 months of prison. In general, Pussy Riot opposes uh, Vladimir Putin and his policies that seek to rid Russia of women's rights and LGBTQ people. The group is outspoken in a variety of ways, to the point that several members have had to flee Russia. 
Still, even from outside Russia, they have continued their resistance to Putin. This has presently earned uh, Tolikonikova and, uh, and others the distinction of being added to Russia's most wanted list. In his, in his interview with Tolikonikova, okay, thank you, Ellie, Scott Simon asked about uh, some of her public remarks that she made in Vancouver on April 26, where she spoke to Vladimir, Vladimir Putin directly. Tolikonikova... Um, Tola Konakova, Tola Konakova uh, said this in reply, I told him that the Kremlin walls became his prison walls and that he already lost in spirit. That's why he's afraid that the free world is on the side of Ukraine. The whole world really is on the side of the brave people of Ukraine. Quite powerful. You know, to go talk to, I mean, bravery to go talk to Putin directly, I mean, obviously in Vancouver, but to say these words directly to Putin when you know that you're on a wanted list. And remember, people keep dying who oppose Putin. They keep dying across the world. Many of them end up falling off balconies mysteriously. But Pussy Riot hasn't only taken on Putin. Recognizing that Donald Trump represented a very real fascist threat to America's democracy at a time when many people were willing to give Trump a pass. Now, I'm talking pre-election in 2016. In October of 2016, even before Trump was elected, Pussy Riot issued a video titled Make America Great Again. I urge you to Google the video titled Make America Great Again by Pussy Riot to watch how the characters out, out, act out what they believe would be Trump's fascist vision for America. Again, this is 2016 before he was even elected. But be aware, for those of you who do go find the video, there are some scenes that depict violence to women. Here is a portion of that song titled Make America Great Again. No more small breasts. <laughs> Do you want your world to look like? What do you want it to be? Do you know that the world has two sides and nobody is free? Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine? Sticking all through Syria, crossing all the borderlines? Let other people in. Listen to your women. Stop killing black children. No more fat pigs. Burn pigs! Keep going. Hey there. Let's look at him. Push your head down. Let down the people in. Listen to your women. Stop killing black children. Stop killing 
I mean, it is a very catchy tune. I'm just sitting here seat dancing to the to the tune, and Jack had to jump up on my lap, and he's jumping up on it again. So here's the deal, everyone. Her name is Tolik, Tola Konakova. Okay, Tola Konakova. I got that right. Finally, Tola Konakova. Nadia, all right? Please remember this, okay? Idealists. And idealism shows up in a variety of ways. Sometimes wearing masks. Sometimes by laying on altars, singing songs, challenging the status quo, challenging the most powerful man in Russia. Sometimes idealists show up in ways that you don't expect. And that is incredibly powerful. Okay, that's it for our A Block. When we come back, we're going to talk to a couple of idealists working to make uh, jury pools more diverse so that criminal defendants of color get a fair shake at trial. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, (laughs) the one and only murders words, murders names, sits and sings, has this dog going crazy in the recording booth. But listen, we're having fun, right? Because if we didn't laugh, I would be crying with all that's going on. Okay, we'll be back in a second. Ellie 2.0 Radio. So, go and do as I suggest. Check out Pussy Riot. I mean, group of idealists. They are, okay? All right, well, listen. uh, Now is the time for the big interview, as you all always enjoy with my shows. And we have two wonderful, incredible lawyers who are here to talk about a subject that you probably don't even know is an issue or a problem. So with us today is Bethany O'Neill. She is a former assistant public defender here in Minnesota, but now is presently a deputy public defender at the office of the California State Public Defender. She represents clients on appeal. And Creston Gackle, he is an assistant public defender in the 3rd District. That's down in Rochester. And uh, he's a sole practitioner of Creston Law, LLC. Bethany and Creston, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we have you here in part. Well, you know, I'm a lawyer and my audience does as well, even though I don't practice, but I'm still licensed, working on my last three credits to keep the license up for CLE. But I'm here because in the most recent um, edition of the Minnesota Bar Journal, uh, the two of you, as as well as uh, David Schultz, who teaches at uh, Hamlin, uh, wrote this piece titled Minnesota's Racially Biased Jury Pools and How to Fix Them. And it caught my attention because it seemed a very idealistic piece that you wrote. And, um, and I, I, I had some general idea about uh, jury bias here in Minnesota. But 
um, I really wanted to have you on the show to talk about it more. And so, so let's talk first, and, and I'll let the two of you figure out who's going to go first here. Um, but feel free to, you know, tag team or however you want to do it. What, tell us about what is the issue as it relates to the jury, you know, bias in the jury pool. And maybe one of you, at least at first, take us through the process of how a jury is selected in Minnesota and where do they find the jurors? And maybe that can form the basis for how we go forward. Bethany? I'll defer to you to Bethany. Bethany, go ahead. Okay. Okay. I can, I can, I can handle that. Uh, so we have a statewide process. So every county in the state goes, uh, follows the same rules um, that are determined by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, and every um, county pulls a jury pool from two specific places. One is the Department of Motor Vehicles records and also voter registration. So if you're on either one of those, then you're going to be in the pool of people that could be called into jury duty. And then that happens once a year, they pull the list together. And then at your local level, whether it's your county or whether your your district, um, they come up with a list of folks and then they send out um, the, the summons for jury duty. Um, so every, in every state or in every county in Minnesota, it's all, they do it kind of the same way. And then let's take it from there. So jurors are called to the courthouse in like, in a mass on a particular mm -hmm. day, and there's going to be a criminal trial. And then you'll have the judge in the courtroom. You have the lawyers in the courtroom. You'll have the defendant in the courtroom. And then you'll have a, a clerk in the courtroom itself. And what does the clerk do to, to, to get the jury process started once we have people in the courtroom? Right. Well, once a certain amount of people and the judge usually decides how many people that we're going to need, if the trial is going to be a long length, then they have more people because folks are going to say, oh, I have to, a doctor's appointment or I have a vacation or my I have some reason why I couldn't be here more than three or four days. Um, because if you get seated on a, on a jury trial, it can last anywhere from two days to three weeks or six weeks. Um, if it's a civil trial, it can last a really long time. So a certain amount of people get up to the get up to the courtroom, and then the judge usually um, asks questions, and everyone gets asked the same question, which has to do with all sorts of things: where you live, what kind of work you do, what your kids do, if you have a spouse, what that person does. All you know, just kind of demographic type questions. Um, and then questions to see if folks are able to serve, which is the hardship, the, the hardship portion. And then after that, the lawyers get to ask questions. And that's where things um, can get very interesting. Right. And, and that's called void dire. And uh, the, the lawyers, the whole idea is for the lawyers to try and weed out jurors that might be disfavorable to their case or to find ones that might be favorable. I mean, the idea is to find jurors who are neutral, who don't have an opinion, don't have bias one way or the other, and who can fairly consider the evidence. Um, okay. So thank you, Bethany, for that. So we, you know, and so through that process, the lawyers asking questions, then jurors are selected and some are unselected. Okay, they're you know, and uh, the both sides of a jur of a jury trial have 
a certain number of what are called strikes where they can just strike jurors that they don't think are going to be favorable. And then there are other ways to have jury, juror, potential jurors dis, disqualified. Okay, that was probably way too long for us to explain it, but let's now talk about how bias comes into play um, in this process. Uh, Creston, can you uh, uh, take that and, and, and now talk about the representativeness of the jury pool, okay, as it then matriculates down to the jurors on the box? How does racial bias, um, let's just deal with that, come into play? Yeah, certainly, Ellie. So what we wrote about in our article and what uh, Professor David Schultz and Bethany put together were essentially that people of color are underrepresented on these lists that we pull from called the source lists, whether it's the voter registration list or the ID list um, or the driver's registration list. And so what happens is that the people showing up to the courthouse just as a pool, not just individuals, but as a pool, is not representative of the community from which they are drawn. Remembering that, um, you know, each the representativeness of a community is based on the census uh, rather than, you know, any any other kind of statistic. And so what happens is you have an unrepresentative pool uh, usually underrepresenting people of color, and so fewer people of color ultimately get on to juries than would be anticipated based on how many of them are in uh, the community. So, for example, uh-huh. here I'm interrupting you, uh, Creston, but in Minnesota, generally, okay, statewide, uh, the percentage of people who do not identify as white only is about 20, 21% across the state. Now, in the Twin Cities, the percentage is higher, and some other locales it's higher and really what you're talking about is that very often particularly in greater minnesota we're not going to get you're not going to have a jury pool where it's 20 to 22 percent people of color do i have that right yes and so when this this becomes a big problem at least from the perspective of courts and the national center for state courts which helps assist state court administrators when we hit what we call a comparative disparity exceeding 30 or 40 percent. At that point, what we're saying is the proportion of people of color. So, for example, uh, let's say Asian Americans, their percentage um, on juries or called to the courthouse even is 40 percent lower than we would expect if we basically took a snapshot of the community and put that on the jury. Okay. Okay. And how does that how does that um, lack of representation in the jury pool, how does that affect the administration of justice, Bethany? Well, I think there's there's two ways that it affects the administrative of just, administration of justice. One is not everyone gets to participate in the process. And the, the judicial process is only as fair as we all decide that it is. Um, So we're excluding people who would want to participate in the process and aren't getting an opportunity to to participate in the process. And then on the flip side is that people that are involved in the process, we know that um, the people that are especially in the criminal process that are accused of crimes, there's a much higher rate of um, diversity in that population. So we know that from illegal stops and and 
implicit and explicit bias in policing um, and prosecuting and charging. We know that all those things lead to way more diversity in uh, people that are involved in the criminal justice process. Well, isn't it? So if we're not having those people, if we're not having a diverse group of people come, the person who's in the hot seat, whose case it is, um, isn't seeing anyone that's from their community or looks like them. I mean, the backdrop uh, with this is that Minnesota has the highest, if not uh, one of the highest, if not the highest rate of incarceration of people of color in relation to the percentage of the population being of color. I mean, we, we got a whole lot of mainly, uh, not mainly, but yeah, mainly black men who are in prison here in Minnesota, which is way out of proportion to the number, the percentage of black men in the state of Minnesota generally, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. And Creston, so, so if we don't, if we have an all white jury, um, on, you know, considering a case involving a black man with white, for example, white prosecutors, white police officers, um, is it fair for us all to assume that the odds of that man getting a fair trial are reduced because there's nobody on the jury that understands, may understand his lived experience? Am I right about that? Yes, I think you are. So number one is what I think people underestimate, which is that what Bethany was talking about, which is the whole appearance of whether the process itself feels fair. And that influences not just the individual's feeling about, you know, going into their own jury trial, but whether they exercise the right to a jury trial at all, whether they come to court, whether people in the community have any faith at all in the, in the jury process to yield a fair result. And I think uh, you do see that in various places in Minnesota. I think you see that repeatedly at the highest court in the land uh, with Flowers, the Flowers v. Mississippi case. Um, people just don't have confidence that a fair result would have been reached. And there are statistics, uh, which I would defer to Bethany uh, to explain as she wrote the section of the article, but uh, that show people, if a jury is more diverse, you get a more deliberative deliberative process, you get better uh, decision-making of a jury. It's not necessarily ferreting out, you know, what exactly is right or wrong or innocent or not innocent or guilty or not guilty, but the fact that they deliberated better. And you do see it in the outcomes as well with um, black defendants being essentially convicted by juries at higher rates than white defendants controlling for other factors. Yeah, thanks, Creston. Bethany, I mean, I was blown away by just one set of statistics in your story in the Bar Journal about just having one black person on the jury, uh, otherwise be an all-white jury, changes things dramatically. Could you Can you talk about that, please? Right. I think that there's been an upsurge as we've become more um, aware just culturally about diversity and inclusion, and there's been a lot more social science research, trying to figure out how that all works. And, and we're not always sure why it works. Why does it, why does it make a difference to have that one person? But I think we all understand that it's pretty straightforward that the number of voices and bringing a diversity of experience can really color a conversation. So if you have 12 jurors in a room, they're going to talk about a case, you would want as many different perspectives as possible. Um, 
So it's not about necessarily ferreting out the person who is implicitly biased or is, right. is explicitly biased. It's about finding and talking about implicit bias. So just having that person, the one person present, the, n- there's no research that says that they have to be the leader or they convince other people. It just is they took jury trials, they took jury trials and results, and they crunched the numbers just based on not what happened in the jury room, not the conversations that were had, but just that presence of the one person. Well, your study, uh, your your article cites a study, um, a 10-year study of 785 felony trials over 10 years, which found that um, uh, when, there, when there was a black defendant and, the, and the, all the jurors and the pool from which those jurors were taken was, was all white, um, that uh, black defendants uh, were convicted uh, 81% of the time and white defendants uh, convicted only 66% of the time. But when the pool included at least one black person, that is when we got one black person on the jury, 71% of black defendants were convicted. That's compared to 81%, so a 10% reduction. And then it went up, the conviction rate for, for white defendants to 73%. I mean, to me, that's pretty remarkable, okay? Um, and and it, it says everything. Now, Creston, in the 3rd Judicial District, this is where you practice, is that right? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, yeah, so this is down in the Rochester area, right? Uh, I'm mostly in uh, Rice, Wasika, Steele, Freeborn, and Moore, so the I-35 counties. Okay, but third, when we think about the 3rd, I mean, Rochester would be the hub um, for that, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. The most major city. And so there was a move in... Because there's a, I mean, certainly there's a large Somali population in the third district as well as Latino population. So there was a move to get the jury pool in the third judicial district to be more, to be broader, to be more reflective of, um, of you know, the, the minority population in that district. What, what steps took place in the third district and, and how were they received by the court system? Yeah, so we got a report from the uh, state level Committee for Equity and Justice, which basically did a statewide review of the representativeness of uh, juries, as well as county by county, district by district numbers. And we got that at the local committee, and we decided as a group to send a letter to our chief judge. Under the rules uh, that the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, approved, the chief judge of any uh, judicial district can order what's called corrective action to improve the representativeness and inclusiveness of the jury pool. And so we suggested a number of things um, that we thought you know, should have been implemented or should be implemented uh, now that we have this data in hand. And frankly, you know, Ellie, I would just bring up that part of the impetus here is this is a problem that to be frank, the legal system in Minnesota has known about for at least 30 years, if not longer. Because 30 years ago, the 1993 Racial Bias Task Force report identified essentially the same problems with underrepresentation in juries and the various processes, except on the defendant, the criminal defendant side. And so we suggested a number of reforms. Um, I, I don't know if you want me to no, go through each you, one of them. We don't have time to go through all of them, but yeah. were the were the were all the suggestions accepted or were only some of them suggest, uh, accepted? 
only some of them and our information is that they would have been implemented now as of april 1st by the district but essentially though it was limited to translating the jury questionnaires and summonses to be available in multiple languages upon request and to encourage jurors to attend even if they couldn't didn't have the most confidence um, reading English, but they could still verbally right. commute, communicate in English and letting the court evaluate their abilities to but, participate. But some of the recommendations would be, you know, about the system itself, about how you would, you would call, you would get people even on the list, right, to, to be called for jury. Because a lot of, I mean, there's a lower percentage of people of color who have driver's licenses, okay? Lower percentage people of color who have, um, who are, or are on the voter rolls, you know, and so that's where we pick jurors from generally. And so there are other ways to, to get those folks to, to be in, in jury service. Well, I, you know, I could talk with you and I've got to watch my time here. I could talk with you at length about this because for me, this is about a fundamental issue. All right. It is about structural racism, right? It's about structural unfairness. And, and we know, Creston, as you said, we've known for three decades what needs to be done. And the state's still not doing it, which for as liberal as Minnesota is, it blows my mind. It really does. But of course, we're talking about structural racism, which is very difficult to deal with. Okay, the two of you, I always ask, all right, of my guests, what, you know, what made you an idealist? Bethany, what made you idealistic? Because your whole career has been, you know, in defending people who've been accused of crimes, representing, you know, giving voice to those who lack voices. So what made you an idealist? Uh, you know, I think in honor of Mother's Day, I would say my mom. <laughs> She's not as much of an idealist as I am, but I think she really taught me to pay attention to other people. Um, and to care about other people. And when I went to law school, it was very clear as soon as I started, the only type of law I would want to practice would be criminal. And I would never do anything other than criminal defense because I believe in giving voice to folks and I believe in helping them with their individual problem. And I also believe in trying to change the system. And this article was about trying to like shine a light on something that most people that aren't lawyers don't have a lot of exposure to that. They get the jury summons and then they, you know, start complaining to their friends about how they don't want to go to jury duty. And I think we have to try to change that because we need to get everyone involved so that we can. And I think since 2016, things have been um, shined a light on with things going on with the Supreme Court. And we need to all need to all participate more. And I say that as a biased lawyer who this is my profession and what I'm committed to. But I think that that's what um, being involved in the system and the change at a macro and a micro level is what keeps me being an idealist. I often hear it was the mother that helped somebody become idealist. Okay. Just so you know, <laughs> Bethany. Creston, Creston, what made you so idealistic? Um, I'll give credit to my parents, too. Um, they had... Uh, they faced some significant adversity in their upbringing and um, they had a great deal of hope for me. I, I think what made it clear to me that I am an idealist is that I, you know, I had, 
I had an idea that there was always going to be a correct answer. I think that's why I went to law school in part because I believed in that. But it turns out there, there generally isn't one. There may be a better answer, but not a correct one that you can find right now. And I think hope persisting in the face of adversity, um, has, it's made me recognize that I am an idealist because I do persist in my hope that um, things can be better for everyone even though they haven't been for a long time. You know, you, <laughs> I often say the same thing about hope and about persistence. So thank you, Creston. Well, Bethany um, and Creston, thank you both so very much for being on the show and talking about this important thing. Um, uh, listeners, if you, if you have the ability, I don't know if they can go online and see the article, but if not, they can contact me. But the online, the, the article... Uh, through the Minnesota Bench and Bar, which is the Bar Association, is titled Minnesota's Racially Biased Jury Pools and How to Fix Them, um, came out in April. Both of you, Bethany and Creston, thank you so very much for being LE 2.0. I really appreciate it. And continue, please, the good, hard fight. We need you to keep going, okay? All right. Thanks so very much. Take care, both of you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bye-bye. Okay, listeners, that was uh, Creston uh, Gackle and uh, Bethany O'Neill. Um, so see if you can check out, but you can also just go online, do research about jury pools because it's very important. All right, when we come back, we'll do my, we'll do my C block. I'm going to talk about something happening in Chaska, Minnesota. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Kelly 2.0 Radio. <laughs> we are, oh, we're having fun here in the recording booth with Jack, the Golden Retriever. Jack, Jack Attack. Okay, um, so if some of you, I'm sure, have been on juries, some of you will be called for jury service. For those of you who will be called in the future, do me a favor. When you get to the big room, before they start putting jurors, what's called in the box, because the clerk calls out numbers and then people have to go from the bigger bigger collection of people in the courtroom and then go sit in the jury box look around take a look see how many people of color are in the pool along with you just take an take an idea about that okay and then remember how the system is rigged we remember that and think about being a person of color as a defendant in a room in some places in Minnesota, the only person of color in the whole room. Just think about that. Okay, all right, C-Block, I got to talk about my work, although I think what I just did was a little bit of talking about my work. All right, so um, you know I'm in Carver County, Minnesota. That's where I live. Elected to the school board there, although this talk and radio show is not about the school board. Um, and you know um, it's a county that went for Trump by 6 in 20 Although parts of the county are like Chaska are pretty blue and other parts are purple, but then there are some that are absolutely still red. It's a big county and yeah, so it's got that mixture 
All right? It's going on, same thing going on across counties in America. So uh, it happens to be that there is a children's boutique in Chaska, in a, in a strip mall um, anchored by a Home Depot and uh, a Cub Food. And uh, this uh, children's boutique is, is named uh, Little Ruse, R-O-O-S, like little kangaroos, okay? And in the boutique, they've got um, hand-sewn. So the owners of this boutique, she uh, hand-sews all the children's clothing. So we're talking made in America. They've got books, children's books, but not like, I mean, she's gone out of her way to find books that you're not going to normally find like in a Barnes and Noble or other children's bookstore. Okay. She wants things that are different, but some, many of them are about diversity and about teaching good lessons about respect and, you know, and, um, self-regulation and things like that. And then they have toys. It's a, it's an adorable little boutique. And the owner of the of this uh, store, um, Little Ruse, her name is Marissa, uh, decided that she was going to start a series of readings, you know, where you know the, you, parents can bring their kids and uh, some authors of children's book because it happens to be that Chaska's got a couple of children's authors. What do you know? Um, but you know that authors could come or others could read, you know, books, and it. In- she decided in her wisdom uh, that one of those authors would be somebody in drag. Okay, so we're talking like drag story hour. Good for her to decide that. Now, Marissa has, you know, I, I think that she, she will admit that she's not one to be paying attention to the national news all that much because she's trying to run a business um, that apparently is very successful. Um, and what she did not expect when she decided to do this drag story hour is she did not expect um, for there to be an outcry. And that's exactly what's happening. So the little ruse has been the subject of many disparaging comments on social media, um, as well as people walking into the store. I saw a video this week of, of a... Um, of a lawyer, somebody who self-described as a lawyer, a woman walking in self-described as a lawyer, you know, berating uh, Marissa for doing this, planning on this uh, drag story hour, and, um, you know, and, th- and, you know, threatening to sick the, you know, public officials on her for having some kind of unlicensed performance or something. I don't know exactly what it was. However, all of that's been countered by a whole lot of people coming to her store and providing support, buying things, you know, you know, maybe they don't need them, but they're buying them to support um, the store. I, I, I went and spoke with Marissa, gave her some ideas about a few things, um, but mostly to offer moral support that, you know, um, I care about her and her store and, you know, and, and let me just tell you uh, this woman, Marissa, she had, she is, she is just wonderful. She is like, I'm, we're not backing down. We're not, not going to do it. Um, we're, you know, this is part of a series, you know, and, you know, our, we have a nice store here. And, and, you know, and by the way, the thing that people don't recognize is that in order for you to have a drag story hour, you have to have actually parents who bring their children. 
Okay. It's not like, you know, you're grabbing kids that are running down the aisle in Target and say, hey, let's go to this thing, you know, without the, I mean, their parents are there consenting to this happening. And so it's not like, yeah. And I mean, people seem to forget that. Okay. Because parents are the ones who are making the decision that yes, we want our children to, to have a whole variety about the world, to understand that the world is filled with many different people of different backgrounds. My God, isn't that what we want? Didn't I just get done with two wonderful people talking about how the jury pool is biased because people have these limited life experiences and we can't even get people of color into the jury pool? So my goodness. So listeners who are local, okay, and I know I've got a lot of listeners in Carver County, please do me this favor, will you? Will you go Stop by Little Ruse. Will you tell Marissa and her staff that, hey, I care about you. Way to go. I support you. And, you know, why don't you, you know, drop a few dollars. Buy something there for your niece or your nephew, your grandkid or whatever. I mean, these, oh, my God, you should see the adorable little skirts they, they have all handmade. Made in America. I was in the back. I saw where she's got all of her inventory. Makes all her own clothes that are for sale there. Go and do that. Or you can go online. And, of course, Ellie Krug, I didn't get, just Google Little Ruse, Chaska, Minnesota. You're going to be able to get their online presence and buy something online from them. Send them an email. Just say, hey, we support you, okay? But buy something from them too, all right? Because, you know, that's how a great way to show support. Um, she, she told me that, that it's been unbelievable the amount of support that she's been receiving you know, way more than what would ordinarily be the kind of business that she would have with people walking in the store. So, you know, there you go. It just shows you, you know, that remember Ellie Krug's thing. What do I, everybody knows, you know what I'm going to say right now. Remember 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts. We do. We do. Okay. All right. So (laughs) that's my good, that's my that's my good uh, uh, deed for the for the day and for the week. Um, all right, I got to thank Brett Johnson, my producer, who's had to had to do a lot of things here today because I have Jack here. I need to thank Jack because Jack has been a good boy for about ten minutes. And to you, my listeners, I am thrilled that you continue to come and that you like Ellie 2.0. Thank you for excusing me that I murder names that are difficult to pronounce for me because I'm not Russian. I apologize about that. Um, I should try better. I did practice, believe it or not, but, you know, I should practice a whole lot more. In the meantime, between now and when you hear my voice next, will you do me this favor? Will you go out, do something to make the world better? Have some compassion for another human and act on it. All right, take care. End of the show. Talk to you next week. Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0, out. Out.